The following resource is from DesiringGod.org. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And before I pray and ask for God's help for me and you, let me just tell you where we're going and related to last Sunday's message. You remember last Sunday I cut it short and uh, left one question to be answered. That's all I want to do is answer, try to answer that one question this morning. Namely, what does it mean that we for whom Christ died are to fulfill the requirement of the law, which is what you just saw read in verse 4? More specifically, I put a point on it and I said, you mean my imperfect love or my imperfect obedience really is supposed to qualify as a fulfillment of the law? And I explained, at least in one service I did, they all ran together and I forget, that a lot of people take this text to simply mean that Christ, in doing what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, condemned sin in the flesh by living a perfect law-keeping life for us and then dying as a substitute and pardon for us. So that when it says that the law might be fulfilled or that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled, it means he fulfilled it for us, not that we fulfill it by his power. And I said, while I, theologically I believe that with all my heart and believe it's taught in Romans 5.19 and 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Romans 10.4, I don't think that's the point here. In other words, here, I think when it says what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Those are the words I can't get over to that other interpretation. In us, not for us. It doesn't say for us here. It says in us. And then it adds on top of that, who walk as though it's the walk that does the fulfilling, who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And so those two pointers, the in us word and the walk word, cause me to believe that what he's really saying here is once God has taken care of our justification by a law-fulfilling Christ and a substitutionary dying Christ, once he has taken care of that, now he has a purpose for us, namely that we, walking by the Spirit, fulfill the requirement of the law. And, and so I'm left with this question, what does that mean and how can my imperfect, loving obedience 
be described as fulfilling the law of God. Okay, now we're ready to pray. Let's pray. So, Father, there's the agenda, the question. I believe it's immensely important because it's that for which Christ died in his people that they would fulfill, that we would fulfill your law. So, Father, I I beg of you, help me to be faithful to your word, to answer this question biblically. And I pray that you would be kind and merciful to those who are here so that they would understand this according to your word. And then by the Spirit, by the Spirit of Christ, we would be granted as a church to walk in a way that by love fulfills the requirement of the law. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the way I'm going to approach this. I don't usually do this, but uh, these questions keep coming back and back and back. The Christian's relationship to the law. Talked for years about Romans 7, Romans 8, even back as far as Romans 5 and 6. All right, what about the law? What about the law? Do we or don't we have to do it? Are we justified by works of the law or by faith alone apart from works of the law? So these questions just keep coming back again and again. And so what I want to do this morning is give a big overarching summary statement of the Christian's relationship to the law, terminating on an answer to this question, which will function on the website or any place you want to put it as a reference point for us so that I don't have to rebuild these again and again. And we can plow into Romans 8 with some assumptions as a church, at least for where I stand and I hope where you are. So I have 12 theses. They're not 95. You can be thankful. Just 12. And I'll nail them on the door this morning. And I don't have time to develop all the texts. But the texts are here. But I won't take the time to unpack them. So I'll give you the bullets. And then if you want to unpack the texts, you'll get it off the web. And we'll put it up in the next day or two at Desiring God in some obvious place. Thesis number one. I may have to leave some out. I don't know how long this is going to take, but if I have to leave one or two of these out, then you can pick them up later. I'll try to hit on the most important ones, and I'll try not to get involved in expounding them because everyone could be a sermon and that wouldn't work. Number one, fulfilling the requirement of the law in Romans 8.4 refers to a life of real love for people. The fulfillment of the law refers to a life of real love for people. And I get it from Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Or Romans 13, 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is a fulfilling of the law. Or Galatians 5, 13 to 18. 
The whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but I say, walk by the Spirit. And it's that text that makes me feel so confident about this because in Paul's mind, in Galatians 5, 13 to 18, he links walking by the Spirit with the fulfilling of the law, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Thesis 1. We're talking love here when we talk fulfilling the law. Number two, our fulfilling the law in loving others is not the ground of our justification. Our right standing before God. Rather, the only ground for that is the obedience and bloodshedding of Jesus Christ alone. Through faith alone, before any other acts are performed of any loving kind or any faithful kind. Our fulfilling the law by becoming loving people is a fruit and evidence of justification by faith alone, not the ground of it. And I have been saying that for these three years, and I hope by grace it is sinking in. Thesis number three. This fulfilling of the law in loving others is rendered not in our own strength, but by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's right there in verse four. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That means who don't lean on their own native human resources, but avail themselves of all that God is for them by the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. That's thesis number three. We don't do it in our own strength. Number four. The fulfilling of the law by loving others through the Spirit is rendered by faith. The Holy Spirit becomes powerful in and through our lives as we trust Christ. If you wonder, how can I get the Spirit to move in my life? The answer is, you trust Jesus and he'll be moving in your life. So faith is the human counterpart to the divine work of the Holy Spirit in producing love. And this faith is the faith that justifies. In the first twinkling of this faith, God reckons us right in his eyes. And all the perseverance of that faith through life is the means by which we are made into loving people. It is being satisfied in all that God is for us in Jesus, this faith. Thesis number five. The fulfilling of the law in loving others through the Spirit, by faith, is not a perfect love in this life. Nobody, John Wesley notwithstanding, ever loves perfectly in this life. And there I have all my texts from Romans 7 written down, plus Philippians 3, and you can find others. Thesis number 6. 
However, my fulfilling of the law in loving others through the Spirit by faith will become perfect when I die or when Jesus comes back. In other words, if you take my life as a whole, including its post-death life or post-second coming life, I do become perfect. I will perfectly fulfill the law in that day or in that heaven. Romans 8.30, those whom he justified, he glorified. One day, this imperfect pastor will be a perfect pastor. Not in this life. Or Hebrews 12.23, you have come to Mount Zion and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect coming a day when you won't have to groan anymore, not only over your bodily ailments, but over your failures. Hasten the day, right? Come, Lord Jesus. So I will. I will one day perfectly do it. Thesis number seven. Even though someday after death or the second coming, whichever comes first... I will be perfect and thus perfectly fulfill the law forever and ever and ever with no sin at all. Yet, even to eternity, the life called John Piper will be a justified sinner and nothing more. I will never mount up so much perfection through all eternity that my imperfection, which is part of me in this life, will not require an eternal leaning upon an alien imputed righteousness. May Jesus be praised. May Jesus be ever praised. May we never outgrow Our need to praise Jesus, not only for the power to get me perfected. Yes, praise you for that, Jesus. It's coming. But for the fact that the whole piper, who will always be a defective piper, if you take the whole piper into account, will have to lean on an alien righteousness for acceptance with a holy God who requires perfection from beginning to end. And so Jesus be praised, not only for power, but for his perfection in my place. That's thesis number seven. Number eight. Even though imperfect, this spirit-dependent, Christ-exalting love is true and real. And the direction of life required by the law. Even though I'm not perfect. I'm different. I've been born again. The Holy Spirit is within me. 
I have new priorities. I have new values. Yes, I live them out very imperfectly, but they're new, they're real, they're me. And this new direction, not perfection, that's a helpful way to remember it because of the rhyme. New direction, not perfection, is real. And it is the direction required by the law. And in that sense, then, I say, I fulfill the law. Not perfectly yet. But I got the direction. The stream is no longer flowing fleshward and hellward. It's flowing spiritward and heavenward. As much mud as there still is in it. That's thesis number eight. Number nine, the fulfilling of the Old Testament law in loving others by the Spirit, through faith, imperfectly, is sometimes called in the Bible the law of liberty and sometimes called the law of Christ. Just a word about those two. The law of liberty, James 2, verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Which is why we must have a substitute righteousness. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Therefore... So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. That's a sweet sound. What does it mean? Law of liberty. Well, here's what I think he means. This is sub point one under thesis nine. So there's two parts to thesis nine. I wanted (laughs) twelve. I think he means, Christian, when you pursue love, as you certainly will do, because you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit whose fruit is love. When you pursue love, pursue it as one who is free from the law, as the ground of your acceptance with God. Pursue it as the law in quotes of liberty. Another way to say it. We look to the spirit of Christ for transformation so that love overflows from power within, not pressure from without. The law of liberty is being written on the heart, producing desires from within, not just feeling oughtness and duty from without. And therefore, the pursuit of love is an indirect pursuit. You go to Jesus. You go to the Spirit. You go to the Word. You don't go to the lists of do's and don'ts, first primarily decisively, and certainly not as a ground or a power. You go to Christ. And the event of the relationship and the satisfaction and the joy and the spillover of what he's like in your life is called a law of liberty for against such things there is no law. Or it's called the law of Christ. 
two places in the New Testament. It's called the law of Christ. First Corinthians 9.21, to those without the law, I became without the law, Paul says in his evangelism. That is, he, he broke the food commandments and things like that, and, and he simply took risks and got himself into big trouble with the legalists in Jerusalem. And to those who are without the law, I became as one without the law, though not being without law of God but in the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Or he says in Galatians 6-2, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ. I think it's the same thing as the law of liberty. The law of Christ. A new commandment I give you. That you love one another as I have loved you. In other words, I think Christ is saying, put me in the place of the law. Once you had lists of commandments that pressed on you, you rebelled against them. Now, you're dead to that. Be alive to me. I'm your love. I'm your law. You want to live at a high standard and display my glory in the world? Look to me. Yes, I speak it. Love one another. But, oh, don't you wish sometimes in your old legal self that he had spelled it out with about 35 ways to do it at home? Just tell me how to love this man, woman, child. Tell me how to love my... And he didn't do it. Only in the most broad sketches Because he wants a transformed people who from within can prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And not a people who want this, but are always going to the list to check to do this against their desires. Doesn't want that kind of people. Wants a transformed people who love from inside out and who thus fulfill the law of Christ. We pursue love as the law of Christ by looking to Christ as our all-sufficient righteousness, our all-satisfying treasure, our all-providing protection and helper, and our all-wise counselor and guide. That's thesis number nine. Number ten. I think I'm going to skip it. It's important, but I think there's something more important, and it's number twelve. So I'm going to skip 10 and 11. If you wonder what they are, they have to do with understanding the narrow and the broad sense in which the Old Testament law functioned. And so it's of interest, but not as important as the closing one. And you can read it online. Number 12. Therefore, I close with a three-part answer. So the three parts to number 12. How can my imperfect obedience and love fulfill the perfect law of God? That's the question we began with. It's a question I end with now. And my answer, it's a summary of the the other theses, really. Three statements of, 
All right, Piper, just tell us. Get it as crisp as you can, which is not easy to do on this complex issue. Get it as clear and crisp and practical as you can. How do I, imperfect saint, justified that I am, behave through love such that it can be described as a fulfilling of the law? Three answers. One, you're loving by the Spirit, God-dependent. Christ exalting because you're trusting him for it. Based on your justification. Not the means of it. That is a real loving. It's really what the law required. It's the new direction commanded by the law. It is the end towards which the law was pointing. And you're really doing it. Don't be such a black and white either or person that you have to choose between perfection or nothing. You'll never be a biblical Christian if you have to do that. If you have to choose between perfection or paganism, you're done for. You're either going to be a liar and a legalist on the one side or a despairing lecher on the other side. And the Bible doesn't call you to that. It calls you to a radical newness. Yes, radical newness. Oh, how Christians should look different from other Americans in our lifestyles, in our priorities, in our standards, and in our laying our lives down to get as much gospel and practical help to the Afghan children as we can. So go with Doug Oyen when he takes a team. To Afghanistan. Say, yes, no place I'd rather be. That's what Christians are supposed to look like. It's different. But I'll tell you, on your way there, you're going to crab at somebody. You're going to get upset at the ticket agent. You're going to be frustrated. Your baggage is lost. You're going to get moody. Come on, you can do this. You understand there's real love in the world. In imperfect people. And it is a fulfillment in measure. So that's my first answer. It's a fulfillment in measure of what the law is asking, requiring of us. Second part of that is simply to say again, I'm going to be perfect someday. And Romans 8, 4 doesn't say when it has to happen. It says that the just requirement of the law would be fulfilled in those who walk according to the Spirit. It doesn't say now perfectly. If it said that, I'd have to change my whole theology. It says it's going to be fulfilled. And it is perfectly going to be fulfilled in this life when I die or when Jesus comes. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, we shall be changed physically and morally. No more sin and no more discouragement or disease. Lastly, this is the one that's the most complex, but I think the most honoring to Jesus. See if I can say it. My imperfect, God-dependent, spirit-enabled, faith-based Love, which is real, but imperfect, is all performed by means of trusting another whose obedience was already perfect. 
And if I were not directed to him, banking on him, delighting in him, counting on him, hoping in him, I couldn't even begin to do my imperfect form of love. So, my imperfect love is a constant pointer away from me, if I am doing it by faith, is a constant pointer away from me to the cross and the life of Jesus as the one who fulfilled the law perfectly from beginning to end of his life. And thus, my life of imperfect love, rooted in and dependent on and pointing to his life of perfect love, is a fulfillment of what the law required, namely, a life that points to Jesus. The law is all about Christ. The goal of the law is Christ for righteousness, Romans 10.4. And therefore, if my life, even in this life, imperfect though it is, is rooted in trust in him, it's constantly drawing attention to him. And the law says, yes, 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 that's what I'm written for, to show people the perfect Christ. And this imperfect life points people to the perfect Christ and thus fulfills the intention of the law. Let's pray. Oh, God, please now. By the Spirit, through faith, make Bethlehem a loving people. As close to perfection in this life as we can get as justified people with indwelling sin we need to crucify day by day. So, Lord, do it. Just come, Holy Spirit, upon the people, I pray. Fill them. Empower them. Bless them in this Advent season. Make them radical lovers of the poor and the homeless and the sick and the old and the lonely and the lost. Would you stand with me for a benediction? The Lord bless you and keep you this Advent. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and by his spirit through faith give you peace that just spills over in love to one another. Now and all through the season. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to this resource from DesiringGod.org. If you found it helpful... We encourage you to enjoy and share from thousands of resources on our site, including books, sermons, articles, and more, available free of charge. DesiringGod.org exists to help you treasure Jesus more than anything else, because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him.